So guess what? We're going back into the book of Acts. And today's message is from Acts chapter 11. That's where we left off before Christmas, before the Advent season. And today's message we'll call, And They Were Called Christians. That's a quote from this passage of Scripture. This is the first time in this entire book. So if you have the Bible open in front of you, because we have a few there in the, in the pews, in the seats with you. If you turn to, um, I'll give you the page number since it's not there on the screen. If you turn to page, actually the bottom of page 1089, um, that's where chapter 11 starts. But we're going to be halfway through chapter 11 because that's where we left. So look at page 1090. And just, if you have the Bible or your own Bible, just look at how much, how many pages have come before this? There's a lot of pages. It's a, a thousand pages, depending on how thick the pages are and how small or large the font is. But there's several pages that have already, most of the book has already been put together for us, put, recorded for us. And the few pages that are left, in this spot, in Acts chapter 11, this is the first time that the word Christian is used. Now, we use the word Christian all the time. Uh, Holden Christian Academy, it's the name of our school that we have here uh, for the kids. We, we, we call ourselves a Christian. You know, we, we talk about having Christian families or Christian values. We talk about Christian books and Christian music. So we use the word Christian as a label on everything. There's Christian clothing now. There's Christian, you know, all kinds of things that we put that title to. But if you look in Scripture, it's thousands of years are recorded before that word ever existed. The concept of being a Christian or the label being put on certain people, she's a Christian, he's a Christian, or they are Christians, has never been used before. So this is a big moment in history, and I want us to mark it. I want us to establish it and, and, and understand it uh, in a whole new way here this morning. Because if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we need to live up to the name. We need to truly be what that is meant uh, in our lives. So, prior to this, the believers or the people of God were called all kinds of different things. And we'll just review that for a moment. The first words to actually describe the believers in Jesus Christ were disciples. Because these were the people that started to follow him and they wanted to learn from him. Disciple is, is maybe another word for learners. Those are the, the learners. They were following him. They were watching him. They were listening to him. They were doing what he asked them to do. But they were the disciples. And that was just during the beginning here of the Gospels, where we see him gathering these people around himself that were eventually called disciples. And so when people saw them, they say, oh, those are Jesus' disciples. Hopefully that's a term that's still true of us, but it's not as common as a term that people would refer to you as a disciple, or you might refer to yourself as a disciple of Jesus. The next word that shows up in Scripture is another interesting word for us because we don't use it as much either, but he called his people saints. Now, this isn't in the way that the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church uses the word saints, meaning like these perfect people, these people that have performed miracles. 
Um, Jesus used the word saint because it literally means these are those that I've set apart or that I've called to myself. These are the, 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 the ones that I am going to make holy. So they'll be called saints, but they're not perfect. A saint is someone who's just committed or fully devoted to Jesus, to God, to following him. And so all true believers in Jesus, all true followers of Jesus are also saints in God's eyes. That's pretty cool, right? That he would consider us to be in that category because he's called us to himself through salvation. The other term that we see throughout the New Testament is believers. The the apostles, when they write their letters to the churches, they, they say, to the believers in Ephesus, you know, so, so that's another term. And, and Jesus obviously um, used the term witnesses. We, we, we're studying the book of Acts, and, and in the very first chapter, in those very initial verses, we still have Jesus saying, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you will be my witnesses. So he uses that term witness because we are to take what we have seen in Christ and what we've experienced in Christ and to witness to other people about that, to share that with them. So those are some of the other terms that have been used. But here in Acts chapter 11, in this city called Antioch, which we'll talk about in a moment, people who follow Jesus are starting to be called Christians. First time in history, Christians. The word actually means Christ ones or Christ's people or belonging to Christ. Those are the people belonging to Christ or even little Christ. She's a little Christ or he's a little Christ. Not meaning that you're, you know, God themselves, but that that you're reflecting Christ or that you're one like Christ. That's what this word actually means if you take it apart. And the interesting thing about this word is you would think from then on, from Acts chapter 11, we'd hear it again and again and again, but we only ever hear it three more times, three times in total in the whole New Testament. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because we use it so much. It's become such a common name for followers of Jesus. Here's the other interesting thing about this. It was used to refer to these group of believers, but it was actually first used as a very derogatory or negative label that the Romans and and the the pagan nations used. A little bit like the N-word today. Those Christians. She's a Christian. That's how it was used. He's a Christian. He's one of those people, those Christians. So it was not even used in a good way, as we would say. Now, that's pretty interesting because it eventually became, even though it was meant as an insult, it was adopted by the early believers as a badge of honor for someone to identify you as one of those Christ ones, one of those little Christs, one of those people who's like Christ. Even though it was meant as a negative, you're like, that's right, that's me. 
I identify myself 100% with him. He is my savior. He is my Lord. I love him with my whole self. I don't care what you say about that. I don't care that you don't like it. That's good for me. I like that identity. So even though it was meant to be negative, they took it and turned it around. And we have taken it on ourselves and see it as a positive compliment. If someone says, you know, she's a Christian. Did you know that about her? Can you tell that about her life, his life? So it's amazing also to recognize that it, did, it started out as a negative, and it started out in the city of Antioch, where the disciples were first called Christians, the passage tells us. So let's read the passage a little bit, and then we're going to sort of take it apart so that we can understand what it means to be a Christian back then, and what it still means to be a Christian here now today. So in Acts chapter 11, if you follow along with me, we'll start in verse 19. In verse 19, it says, Now those who have been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, Stephen was killed, he was stoned to death in Jerusalem. Those who were scattered, they they, they left Jerusalem because of that. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews, the message meaning the message of Christ. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch and they began to speak to Greeks also. So remember, we have different cultures, sort of side by side. We have the Jewish culture, the Greek culture, right? The Greek empire had spread over thousands and thousands of miles through Alexander the Great and all his conquering of nations. And he he is the first one to sort of unify most of this part of the world, the Middle East and, and that southern Europe and that area, under one language and one culture. That's the Greek culture. So it doesn't just mean people that lived in what we know now as Greece, but the entire empire, which is now the Roman Empire, because Rome came and defeated the Greeks, but that whole area is still Greek. Our New Testament is written mostly in Greek because of the time in history that all of this came together, that God laid out his plan for salvation. So there's the Jewish people who are mentioned in verse 19. Some of the Jewish people who left Jerusalem because of the persecution told the message of Jesus to other Jews. But now in verse 20 it says, and some of them, some, some of the others, began to speak to Greeks also. In other words, to anyone else. Because they used the term Greeks as basically everybody else. Like they used to use Jew and Gentile. Gentiles were all the other nations. Well, in this section here, we're talking also about everybody else. Those who spoke Greek. Those who were part of the culture there in Antioch. Telling them, verse 20 goes on to say, this is what they told them. The good news about the Lord Jesus. Verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church back in Jerusalem, where they first started, where some of these people came from. And then the people in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch. So we're just sort of getting our bearings here. What's happening? Who's where? 
In verse 23, when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. I love that phrase. Remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And that talks a little bit about Barnabas. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. We've met Barnabas before in the book of Acts. He's always been the good guy. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord even after he arrived. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now remember Saul? Remember Saul back in a few more few chapters back, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9. He was persecuting the church. Jesus met him dramatically on the road to Damascus. He was blinded. Then he was healed from that blindness and came to salvation in Jesus Christ. So Barnabas now goes to look for Saul. And when he found him, verse 26 tells us, he brought him back with him to Antioch. So now we've got Barnabas and we've got Saul who's now converted and has been walking with Jesus for a few years now, learning about God, learning how to teach others about God. And those two men met with the church that had now formed around this sharing of Christ and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So that's what we're Stepping back into now in Acts chapter 8. We're beginning to, to sort of see how the word of God spread. Yes, it started because of the persecution, but the spread has now brought about a good thing for the citizens of Antioch because now they've heard the good news of Jesus. If all these people had stayed happy and fat and comfortable back in Jerusalem, the people in Antioch would have never heard the good news. Because they would have never had any reason to hear it. Because no one who knew Jesus would have visited them or moved into their neighborhood. But because of the scattering of people, because the persecution made some people pack their bags and move out of there because of the danger, now they were in another whole city, able to share Christ with another whole population of people. And this is not a small city. This city of Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So you have Rome, and you have Alexandria, another large city, and then Antioch. Third largest city. Large population of people, pagan people, who are worshiping false gods, who are sacrificing at other idols. At the, you know, at, and, and yet, God saw a way to bring the good news to them. That way didn't look easy. The way isn't always easy, but it brought about fruit for God's kingdom. It brought about more salvation. Here's the thing. God's light often shines brightest in a very dark background. Antioch was known as a wicked city initially when these people first moved there. It was a dark place. There was a lot of uh, wickedness and sinfulness and depravity that took place in this large city. It was also a very, very diverse place. All kinds of people came through Antioch from all kinds of different cultures and with all kinds of different ideas. And so there was a lot of, of philosophy and a lot of idol worship and a lot of things that had just gathered there. But God saw an opportunity and moved a group of his believers into that place 
And then the church of Antioch was born. And you know that over the next 400 years, now America is not even 400 years old. How old is America? Anybody know? 350? Two, let's see. We had the bicentennial in 1976. That was the bicentennial. 235. All right. We're, we're great American citizens, right? We don't even know how old our country is. I just know it's not 400, right? 400 is a long time. 400 years. So over the next 400 years, from this moment that we're reading about right now in the pages of our history book, the Bible, for the next 400 years, Antioch was considered the place where the greatest preachers and the greatest group of believers lived on earth. It became almost like the center of Christianity, although Christianity continues to spread from here. It doesn't just stay here. But great preachers, starting with Barnabas and Paul and Peter, who also visited there later, and then again, a hundred years later, Ignatius and Theophilus, which you'd have to go back in history to read them. But great preachers came all the way through the next 400 years from that place in Antioch. And God used it mightily to spread the word of God through the whole world at that point. So as we think about these initial stages, these built a foundation for a long-term church to be established. And from that church, for the word of God to be taught to all nations that they could reach. A powerful ministry that God brought about through some simple acts of obedience. So, what brought about this kind of powerful church? This group of Christians who, who were able to bring the gospel into their city. What brought this about? How did this happen? Well, it started by witnessing the good news about Jesus Christ. Let's look at this to see what we can learn for our own church this year. We want to be a church that is alive, a church that is vital, a church that is sharing the gospel and sharing the light of Christ wherever we go and wherever we can have influence, whether it's through our missions program or through evangelism or through local outreach. We want to be the kind of church that was born here in Antioch. We've now entered our 51st year of ministry. We just celebrated our 50th. We still have one of the signs up here in the room. Last year was our 50th year of ministry as a group of Christians who had come together in the 70s to form a church. But the 51st year is an important year because now we've got to start to think about the next 50 years. So we've looked back and said, praise God for his faithfulness, his goodness, to walk us through those 50 years and allow us to still be here 50 years later. But will we still be here 50 years from today? Let's pray we will. And I think in these verses, we find the ingredients that will help us to know for sure that we will. May not personally be here. Some of us may have graduated to glory. But the church itself, the church in Holden, at Holden Chapel, will it still be sending missionaries? Will it still be doing local outreach? Will it still be discipling people all around that's the question, and that's what I think we can find the answer to here in these verses. Before we continue, I want you to know that the elders and I, we've been meeting now a couple different long meetings, 
We love long meetings. If you... And what we're trying to do is pray, lay a foundation of prayer, and ask God, what does the next 50 years look like? And how do we do something this year and the next year and the year after that gets us there, that gets us to have the ministry that God has planned in his heart for us to have? It's not a plan that we're coming up with. It has nothing to do with us. We're seeking God. And what I want to ask you as members of the church and as a congregation is just be praying for us over the next few months. Be praying for us as we continue to get together and ask God, what does it look like? Who are we and who do you want us to be in these years ahead? We're seeking God for his plans for the church. And as we do that, we need your prayers. So please do that for us. But let's get back to the passage this morning and see what we can glean from it as individuals, but also as a group of Christians, as a group of disciples of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that I would say we have to see happening here in these verses is there's a word here, a couple words that are used, but basically there's a lot of telling going on. People who are telling others. So at first we see a group of people in verse 19 who are telling the message. We know the message is like shorthand for the message of the gospel. Telling the message to the Jews in Antioch. So that community is being reached. But then in the very next verse, another group of men begin to tell the rest of the city. They're telling the message. They're speaking to the Greeks. They're telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. So three times we have telling, speaking, and telling. So we're going to look at that because if we want to be the church of Jesus Christ at Holden Chapel over the next 50 or 100 or however many years God has us be here, we better be telling people about Jesus Christ. That makes sense, right? If we stop telling people, how will they know? How will they find salvation? Somebody has to tell them. And guess what? It's not just my job. It's your job too. We share this together. You'll notice that this word that, that, that's been translated here in verse 19 about telling is, is, is also it's also used as speaking is something that everybody does. I know everybody in the room is able to talk. I've heard you, right? And what's happening here initially before Barnabas even comes, before Saul even comes, is it's just happening. Now, they don't have a church building. They don't have a pulpit. They don't have rows of chairs set up like this. How is this happening? They're just speaking by sharing in all their regular conversations, Jesus. Who is Jesus? How has he changed their lives? What is he showing them? What has he been doing in their lives? How has he rescued them? They're sharing. They're sharing the good news. So even though they've come through a persecution, they've come through a difficult place, they're able to share the good news. So they didn't come from Jerusalem and say, oh, you won't believe what horrible things happened to us. Wah, 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 wah. So they weren't speaking like that. You know, we're trying to follow Jesus and everybody's throwing stones at us. They actually killed our friend Stephen. No. I mean, they may have told the story, but they didn't tell it like that. Somehow it came across as good news. 
God has sent his son to save us, to rescue us, not just from this world and its troubles, but for eternal life, that we could live in a place that he's prepared for us that is a beautiful place without troubles, without violence, without disease. God has come and he has invited us into a relationship through his son if we will come to him through repentance. This is good news. And it's for you too, whether you're Jew in the Jewish community or whether you're Greek or Gentile from any other community, Jesus came for you. That is sharing or speaking about the good news. So whether there were cultural blocks and language barriers, it seemed as though whoever God put this message into by the Spirit inspired them to speak. And they didn't do it behind a pulpit. So often we fall back onto, oh, that's the pastor's job. That's the elder's job. That's the deacon's job. You know, no, 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 no. It's your job too. It's all of our job together to speak about Jesus. If we stop speaking about Jesus, the church begins to go away. Because the church only grows with new converts, new believers, new people brought into a relationship with Jesus through his love and through his grace. So there's a couple of different words that are translated, but they basically all mean just speak, just say it, just use words, declare the truth and the good news about the gospel. This is important. Because this all happened before Barnabas, one of the key leaders in the early church, even showed up. He's still back in Jerusalem. This was all just happening through normal people. Not professional pastors or preachers. Normal people like you and you and you. That's how it happened. That's how churches are established. That's how churches grow. It doesn't happen through the superstars. It happens through the ordinary people who follow Jesus together, who love Jesus. So the results of this, the results of this fact that everyone is sharing in normal conversations, whether it's at work or around the dinner table or in their neighborhood or hanging laundry or whatever, as they're sharing the results of the spread of the gospel, we see in verse 21, it says, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Again, before anybody big time showed up, the hand of the Lord was with them. Now, what does that mean to you, that phrase? I mean, it doesn't really define it here in Scripture, but if the hand of the Lord is with you, it's better than the hand of the Lord being against you, right? So God is not resisting them. He's assisting them. He's helping them to share the gospel. He's inspiring them to share the gospel. And he's preparing the hearts of the people who they're speaking to to receive the gospel. That's how God works. Sometimes we think it's all, it's all us. It's not us. It's only God through us and with our obedience, but not us doing it. So we have to be careful because sometimes we disqualify ourselves. Oh, I'm not really good at that. I know someone who is good at that, but I'm not really good at that. Guess who's good at it? God's good at it. And if God is in you by his Holy Spirit, then you're good at it too. You just haven't learned it yet. You haven't had confidence or boldness enough yet to try it out. But speaking about Jesus, bringing him up in everyday conversations 
in normal relationships with people. That is our call if we want to be the church of Jesus Christ. So the Lord's hand was with them. We can understand this as like him empowering them to actually speak, but we can also understand it that he's preparing the hearts of those who need to receive that message because he's working all the time. He's in all these situations. So they were, they were so successful at this. I need you to realize that, that at, the, at the Council of Nicene, which some of you know about, but most people don't because it's just an, a council of churches, in the year 325, they reported that 200,000 people were now Christians who lived in Antioch. So from these few people here we're reading about in these pages at the beginning, 325 years, so 300 years later, there's 200,000 people in this community. Nearly a fourth of the entire population was Christian. The city was transformed, changed in, in so many ways. It was no longer a city of darkness. It was considered the city of light. It was an amazing transformation. Did it take a couple hundred years? Yep. It, it didn't happen overnight. But it also took the faithfulness of everyday believers to keep sharing the good news of Jesus. Don't stop sharing. You may not even see the results in your lifetime, but keep sharing because you're, you're spreading the seed. You're planting seeds, and God can make those seeds grow. So that's one secret that we need to realize as we think about our church and as we think about the future of our church. We got to keep sharing the good news. We can't stop sharing it. We have to find ways to continue to bring it into our everyday life. If we are today going to see the world turned upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be like these, these Christians here in this passage. We need to tell everybody we know about the good news of Jesus Christ. We've got to speak to others. But that's not all they did. They didn't just share the gospel. Remember, look in verse 22 again. Verse 22 through 26 actually talks about the fact that they began to think about how to, to share the encouragement that, that, that God had for them, but how to continue to help them to grow. The word encouragement is in this passage, so I just want to read it for you so I don't mess it up. It says, when, when Barnabas arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, so he saw that God was at work in the people, he was very glad, and he encouraged them to all remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He encouraged them. He wanted them to continue to grow. Encouragement is huge. So, number one, we got to tell people. But number two, we got to encourage people. You know why? Living in this world is discouraging. Isn't it? It's not easy. It's getting crazy out there. It can be very discouraging. So we don't need to get together and tell each other how bad it is out there, right? Oh, yeah, it's terrible, terrible. Terrible news. Got terrible news to share with you. More bad news happened today. Want a little more bad news, a little more bad news. Oh, terrible, terrible. Let's commiserate about all the terrible things. Sadly, we do that probably a little too much. 
We need to encourage each other, which is give courage to one another. Remember that we have hope in the Lord. Remember that God is more powerful than any other power or principality. Remember that the good news and the good victory that Christ has already won on the cross is already in place, and it cannot be changed or washed away no matter how bad or ugly it gets out there. God is already in charge of the world. Is there places where it's dark and messy and ugly and violent? Yep. But God is bringing victory. Somehow, in his timing, he is bringing victory. And so we have hope. We don't give up hope. We hold on to hope and we encourage each other. So we're going to tell people. We're going to encourage people. And then this, this concept of discipleship needs to be understood. We need to understand that, that part of this is part of the great commission that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I'm telling you to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. See, Jesus laid this out for the disciples, and this is what we see them doing. They went to other nations. Now they're speaking to other people from other cultures and other cities, and they're telling them the good news, and they're making them into disciples. How do you make someone into a disciple? Well, they choose to join in and learn about Jesus, everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did. See, discipleship is, is a way of life. It's not just like a short course. Sometimes you, you can go to a church and they'll say, you know, take our discipleship class. It's like, mm, it's not really a class. Discipleship is your whole life in Christ, right? It's following him day in and day out. Good days and bad days. Not just showing up for class at 9 a.m. and checking that off your list. I went to my discipleship class. Now, I'm not, I'm just trying to make a point. I'm not saying don't go to get discipleship in a class form of some sort. But don't get the wrong idea that it's just something about how much you know in your head and how many verses you can memorize and how many books of the Bible you've read. You know, it, that's not discipleship because it's all based on your relationship with God. Is your relationship growing deeper and more essential as every part of your life and every thought that you have? Does it filter through the mind of Christ and the word of God so that you are growing in your faith? Some of you say, well, I, I, I went to that class I did that. It didn't, it didn't change my life at all. I'm the same old person. Well, that's because that's not about a class. It's about your relationship with God through his word and through, through understanding who he is and all that Jesus came to teach us and to show us. So it's important that we understand discipleship is, is not something you just get over with. Oh, yeah, I did that. Been there, done that. No, no, no. We're all disciples. Even today, we're, we're, we're practicing discipleship. We're trying to learn together how to be the church that God wants us to be so we can be fruitful for him. So the fourth thing is really we go from telling others and encouraging people and becoming disciples, learners of, of God, to actually reaching out. Because it's not just about us here in this space. The whole completion of the cycle, right? Part one, tell people. Part two, encourage people. Part three, disciple. Part four, reach out to other people and do it all over again. That's what keeps the church going. It's like a, 
a cycle, like a life cycle. But it's like a cycle where, where if we continue to be faithful to tell people the good news in our everyday life, if we continue to encourage each other when we get discouraged and to remind each other of everything that God has done for us already and has promised to do, if we continue to disciple ourselves and read God's word and take it into our lives and let it nourish us and let it, let it help us to change and grow, we then need to not just sit and get fat doing that, but we need to go out and start it all over again. Share it with someone new that you haven't shared with before. Tell them the good news. Help them to become a believer in Jesus Christ by sharing the salvation story, helping the church of God to continue to grow because that's what we see has happened here. It was happening before Barnabas showed up where it says in verse 21, a great number of people believed and turned to, to, to the Lord. It happened after Paul, Barnabas and Saul came and began to really teach. It says that they stayed there for a year. They taught there for a year. And the disciples were called Christians there. And it says a great number of people met together and learned from them. But then I want to read these, past, these last few verses. Verse 27. Let's finish this chapter out. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus. He stood up and through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit predicted that a severe famine was be spreading to the entire Roman world. That's everything that they know. And this actually happened in the parentheses there. It says this happened during the reign of Claudius. So it was something that was going to happen. And Luke records it for us. Now it's happened. In verse 29, the disciples, so we're talking about the church, the Christians in Antioch, each according to his ability decided to provide help for the brothers who were living back in Judea, back in Jerusalem and in that area. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This kind of completes the cycle, right? They heard of a need. They heard that there were people that were going to be suffering because there wasn't enough food to go around. And they decided to do something about it. I love this part, and we can't skip this part. Because we could get so sort of like in our heads or in our hearts or in our own little personal zone here with God that we forget all about others. And that's one thing that this church has never done, I praise God. We have always had a, a, a missions program, reaching out, feeding, feeding the hungry, uh, bringing medical care, bringing education to those who can't afford it, who can't have it. We've always had that in place, and I pray we always will. Because Christians can't just be about themselves or their witness actually suffers. Think about this for a minute. If Jesus came, went straight to the temple, started teaching classes, and never healed the blind man, met the woman at the well, delivered the, the, um, the, the demoniac there in the graveyard there, if he had never touched and healed and brought back to life and did, did all the things for the people in need that, that Jesus demonstrated, if he didn't do those things, what would Jesus be? He'd kind of just be a philosopher, which some people think he is. Some people in this world think he was. He would just be someone with some good ideas, some, some, some positive thinking, right? But that's not what happened. Jesus came... And taught, 
but also touched the world, changed the world. People that he encountered, their lives were changed. If you were blind, now you could see. That's a big deal. If you were deaf, now you can hear. That's a big deal. If you were dead and now you're alive, Lazarus, that's a big deal, right? So lives were changed because he did something. He didn't just say something. See, the two have to go together. For the church to be healthy and for our church to be here in 50 years or 100 years, we have to be both. We have to be evangelistic. In other words, share the good news of Jesus with others. We have to be disciples. We have to learn the word of God, not just make stuff up, but remember what Jesus said, put it into practice, and then we have to live it out. We got to do it. If we do those things, there's no fear that we won't be here in 50 years because God's hand will be with us. He'll be on this place. He'll be on your life. He'll be on your family's life. Because you're obeying the pattern that he set up with his disciples and living it out as a church in, in today, just as it was lived out back then. Amen? I want us to think about this because we have to ask the question, am I, am I doing these things personally? Am I telling others about Jesus? Am I encouraging others that all is not lost? There is hope in Jesus. Am I a discipler and am I being discipled? Am I learning more? The fact that you're here today, hopefully that puts you in that category. And am I reaching out to others with compassion? Those who are poor, those who are hurting, those who need help. Or do I just sort of turn my face away? Say, well, that's not my problem. Because once you do that, you're no longer Christ's people or like a little Christ because Christ didn't turn away from the, the needy. He fed the 5,000. He raised people off of their mats because they couldn't walk anymore. He did the things that were in his heart to do because of compassion. So as we examine ourselves, we also can examine our church. And if we are to do these things, we'll be a healthy believer as individuals, but we'll also be a healthy church as we follow Christ together. Amen? 